Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a conversation with veteran biographer, editor, and publisher James Atlas. His latest book is titled The Shadow in the Garden, A Biographer's Tale. I wrote and finished my biography of Saul Bellow that I spent 11 years on and published in 2000. And uh, then I had been writing some essays for The New Yorker that I described as personal pieces uh, that were really about my generation and our general experience of uh, classic themes like parents and uh, money and success and failure and just the sort of defining episodes of uh, midlife. So I published those in 2006 uh, under the title My Life in the Middle Ages, A Survivor's Tale. And uh, then I had other projects and publishing company and so on. But all the while, I'd been thinking about writing a book that would deal with the book I had written uh, on on Bellow, which I think is an estimable book, but had a lot of psychodrama embedded in it and a lot of uh, struggles between subject and biographer Mm. that continued to gnaw at me. And uh, so about seven years ago, I actually sat down and started to scribble a few notes very uh, tentatively because I had no idea what I was doing to the point where I was hesitant to even sit at my desk. I was pretended I was not writing the book that I then wrote. Uh, uh, it took a couple years to unlock it. Mm. But it, the time had come, I think, because uh, Bello. Not that he's the subject of the whole book, but he figures in it significantly. And he died in 2005, and I felt like it was the moment for me to really sit down and sort out what my experience had been as a biographer. Also, I I thought, I doubt that I'm going to write another life myself. So what I really want to write is what I want to write before, which was the story of how this book got written while I was writing it, uh, the way Boswell, the great genius, wrote his biography of Johnson. I want to be in it not in the sense of, of ego or telling my story anecdotally, but just trying to understand what I was going through trying to understand him and then trying to understand what biography is. So that's how it, it came about, and uh, it evolved over a period of years. It was... Um, Hard to figure out the structure, hard to figure out the story, but I eventually got somewhere far enough. (laughs) Well, you're telling me that an eminent biographer is struggling with his own autobiography. I just want to go home right now. (laughs) No, no. I had had fun sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, I mean, to me and to most people, I'm sure, people who are in the arts, fun is 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 concentration and and absorption and task and that sort of thing. So in that sense, 
finding that it was eight o'clock at night and I was still noodling with this manuscript, I think that was that was good. But but uh, yeah, it was tough. It's like I had to face a lot of things. I, I had to write a self-critique. I haven't written my memoirs. It's not about mom and dad and all that, but it's about me as a, as a, as a sensibility. And how you became who you are. That's what I found so interesting as someone who hasn't met you before, but knows of you, of course, that reading that you as a young man had this sense, uh, this experience that led you on this path with this new book, with The Shadow. Uh, well, the book, it's a culmination. And in that, in that sense, uh, whatever other struggles there were, it has the virtue for me of being a summation. And, and it really goes back to how this all began and, and how I figured out perhaps not who I was, but what I wanted to do, what I wanted to accomplish in life. And I, I got a weirdly early start because Richard Elman's biography of Joyce, which became the kind of formative work for me uh, when I studied with him at, at Oxford, was a book that was kicking around our living room in Evanston, Illinois, when I was 15, and that I may have even read some of, uh, because I had a very literary-minded father. So it really, for me, people wonder at a conference like this, how did you, how are all these people biographers? Like, what kind of weird, you don't say to people, why did you become a periodontist? They just did. <laughs> but <laughs> it's fine. Go be a periodontist. But biographers, like, what's up with that? And so I, I, I found it, I wanted to think about what, what it unlocked for me, what it made, why it made literature interesting. Had you worked it through in your head before, or was it purely writing this that, that made you understand? Oh, wow. No, I had worked through nothing. I mean, that's what, that's what writing really is. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it's just a, a form of self-therapy, uh, and I really needed to figure it out as I, I went along. And I would have these revelations that were just like you, you get in, in therapy, that kind of flooded recognition when you un actually understand something for once. And of course, there were a lot of false steps, too. But I, I another thing that really uh, people have noted about the book is the footnotes which are extensive and very entertaining. And so apart from everything else I was doing, I thought, you are going to write a book that has a narrative and tells a story. Instead of saying, then I read Leon Edel's five-volume Henry James, or rather if I refer to it, to it, if I say, I lay on the couch and read Leon Edel's Henry James, it changes everything. <laughs> like, oh, you're there. You're the, you're, a person is telling you this. And that was really helpful to me. Uh, and, and I didn't want to write about, about my family, but I have like four sentences about my wife and maybe two about my children, just so that I'm there, present in the book. And that, that helped me a lot, too. And the footnotes, when I was, got tired of the narrative, I would just write a footnote, and they, they turned out to be very entertaining, I guess. They are. <laughs> I think that should always be the goal, is to have entertaining footnotes, and you certainly <laughs> <laughs> They were way of blowing off steam. Yeah. Yes, you're writing about Edmund Goss and uh, Froude and the 19th century English biography tradition, but here's a good joke. <laughs> Not a one-liner, but just something that struck me as funny. 
<laughs> how, I'm, at hearing you talk, I'm wondering how the last years of your editing biographies had to have impacted your writing this autobiography. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, I'm, a few people don't need to make a living while they're writing biographies, but for most of us, the $2,000 grants here and $4,000 advances there don't take you very far. And so I've always done things. Uh, I founded the Penguin Live series and edited those and then two other series. So, uh, it was a lot of books. Um, and I worked at the New York Times Magazine and I worked at the Book Review. I found that editing other writers, far from being an impediment, I thought it was a great way to learn because you just you take someone's work and you help them figure out what they want to say, including a lot of famous writers that mm-hmm. I, I published, some of whom didn't want to hear about it, but, but others who, do, who, who did. And to work with a, a writer, it's fun. It's, like an act, it's an activity, and it helps you in your own work. What, what you're really doing is learning how to help people think, because that is the most elusive part of it. You're, you're writing along, and you realize you're, you're lost, and you don't know what you're saying, but you, for some reason, are continuing to write. Like it's like uh, well, if the road runner goes over the cliff, <laughs> but he's still up there in the air. There's you're still writing. You don't know what you're doing. So so that was <laughs> kind of that helped me a lot, and it made me see also the virtues of since they were short books. It made me see the virtues of compression and pacing and trying to keep the reader's attention. If people should ever say to me oh, I just read your book straight through, or I read it, I was drawn into it. That's good. I like that. That seems like an achievement. You talked about small advances. When you got your very first advance, that $3,000 advance, Mm. must have felt like an enormous sum and responsibility. And what was that like? Of course, it's true. I remember just so vividly being elated by this. And And the amount of money seemed enormous. It just seemed so dramatically beyond anything I'd ever imagined. Plus, it was for our Strauss and Drew, and plus it was a book contract, and all these things. It took me a few months to get it. And then after that, some of my books have gotten rather more massive advances. Now they're going down again, so you can't count on it anymore. (laughs) It was the window, (laughs) the golden, the six-figure window. That's gone. But I I think it's actually a very good question because when you want to do something, you're going to do it. And I I remember uh, with Bello especially, but also with Delmore, applying for grants and trying to get the money and and you have to you have to travel and you have to support yourself and you it's a very expensive proposition writing a biography when you think about it and all the library research apart from just living day to day so it requires a kind of uh, weird dedication that, that that the best biographers have and uh, except for the presidential biographers who make a lot of money the rest of us are. Uh, it's kind of, you're, you're scraping by. It doesn't matter how many people know your name. That doesn't, you can't monetize it, really. <laughs> so this is why people talk so much about choosing the right subject, because for me, Delmore was an incredible subject, but one that I virtually conjured up out of nowhere, since no one had heard of, of him. Certainly no one had heard of me. Uh, I just felt, 
I don't know why, I felt that this was a great story and that I would work on it no matter what. You knew that from the first... Yeah, I did, actually. Uh, and not only did I, I d- identify with him, but he resonated in some very profound uh, spiritual and emotional way. And that helped propel me forward, too. But I think the other thing about it is, when I was reading the other night from my Dwight McDonald letters to me, you, how do you learn to do this? People are beginning to think about an MFA in biography. I'm not sure I believe in that as a proposition. I don't think it can be taught that way, but it's got to be taught some way. So how do you even learn how to do it? You have to read endlessly, which also earns you nothing, and you have to study the form and, in my case, have a, a mentor, but many people don't. And so it's, you're really you're constructing what is, in essence, a new career every time. Each one is different. Because each subject has a different source material and yeah. location, and yeah, yeah. Each each is each is different. You're you're starting a new. Even a pro, he's talking to Edmund Morris about his biography of, of Edison. He's got to learn math, for example. I could certainly never do that, but it's like you have to learn whole new areas, languages, fields. Judith Thurman was. Danish for Isak Dinesen. I mean, you really, or Stacy Schiff, who knows God knows how many languages. Uh, you really have to begin at the beginning each time. Mm-hmm. Which is why these conferences are so helpful, because I think most mere mortals have no sense of what people have to go through to to achieve a Cleopatra, or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I think with Richard Holmes, he, uh, he's such an innovator, but he wrote me a couple weeks ago, and he said, what am I supposed to do at this lunch talk? And I said, just, just tell him what you do. Just explain your principles, or as he now has called them, parables. And because it'll, even to the ones who've done this their whole lives, it, it will be... Uh, an illumination. Well, that's the same reason we love to read biography too, right? We love to hear other people's experiences with how they do what they do and what their insights are. Mm. Yeah, it seems to me that that you're you're learning a new way of thinking. That's the other other thing. You're learning this kind of intuition, this intuitive sense of another person, and that requires tremendous amount of. Empathy, which I don't know if it can be learned or not. I think it probably can, actually. Uh, but you, you're thinking in a different way. You're not just compiling a narrative. You're not just putting together the, the facts, like, like that uh, jigsaw puzzle that someone described uh, with all the pieces that you're trying to fit together. But you're trying to figure out a way to, to, to think. Like when in Richard's two-volume biography of Coleridge, he has internalized, without making anything up, Coleridge's sensibility, and 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 that's what's so incredible about it is that he he he's he's telling you the story, but he's telling you the inner story. That's what you have to learn to do. And the only way to learn to do it is to do it, right? I'm I mean, afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to figure out some other way. Can I do this and not do it? That, that, if you can explain that to me. 
uh, that would be great. <laughs> well, unfortunately for anybody listening to this, they have to work hard, I I'm guess sorry. is the ups. Yeah. It's not it's not it's worth it, generally. <laughs> <laughs> Here's James Atlas reading from his latest book, The Shadow in the Garden, a biographer's tale. I was uh, twenty-four years old when Roger Strauss for some reason gave me a contract for $3,000 to write the biography of Delmore Schwartz. And uh, it was a uh, challenge. No one had heard of Delmore at that time. Certainly no one had heard of me. Uh, But I had one stroke of of luck, and that was that Dwight MacDonald was his literary, Delmore's literary executor. Uh, They had been very close friends. And Dwight, I don't have to tell this demographic, was the great social critic of his day uh, at the time. He was a very elderly man of 67, I think, when I first met him. But uh, Dwight changed my entire life uh, by becoming obsessively involved in my project. Dwight's hesitation about my project had vanished once I got it underway, and he had even agreed to edit my work in progress. The chapters I sent him came back marked up like freshman themes. His challenges, objurgations, rebukes, and occasional praise defaced every page. Phrase after phrase was judged pretentious, cliché, verbose. Oh, God, he expostulated, denouncing a failed rhetorical flourish. (laughs) You have a great vocabulary of vague and dull terms. Remember, I'm 24. This is Dwight McDonald. What, 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 why summarize what the letter will tell the reader in 25 seconds? He exploded over some lame paraphrase. You're like a museum guide who talks too much. When I glossed over a religious crisis in Delmore's life, he noted simply, weasel. And when I skirted the reason for Delmore's fistfight with Robert Lowell, he scribbled, can't you explain for once If I said too little on that occasion, I generally said too much. Leave the reader alone, MacDonald protested. I was always reader-nudging. Quoting a journal entry in which Delmore confided his anxieties, I summed up, no more succinct or thorough evaluation of Delmore's malady is to be found in all his work, to which MacDonald retorted, and no more vague recapitulation of the main aspects of Dee's malady that have been described a dozen times. You keep wandering back to the old boneyard like a dog that's forgotten just where he buried that bone. <laughs> he makes it easy. For and, and, and when only a page later, I returned to the subject yet again, he exclaimed, my God, you're back sniffing around again for that lost bone? <laughs> what prompted this editorial zeal? Uh, he continued to write the occasional essay, but he was blocked according to his wife, Gloria, and generally had a glass of cutty sark in his hand after four in the afternoon. Then there was his loyalty to the memory of his friend and his love of editing. He had a lot of time on his hands. But I think what drove him was mainly literary enthusiasm. He often complained that he was having trouble writing and spoke wistfully of the memoirs he couldn't seem to get started on. My manuscript gave him the opportunity to roll up his sleeves and go to work. I subsisted on crumbs of praise. Trust you realize that I, unlike the sundial, only record the cloudy hours, he wrote at the bottom of one heavily scored page. There was an occasional good or brilliant or masterful 
amended to the correct masterly, and once a terse but eloquent ah. He got in the habit of annotating pages with stars a la Mimi Sheraton, if you remember her, the food critic for the New York Times. But he doled them out even more sparingly than the famous food critic and was so scrupulous that he once crossed out very fine and replaced it with fine. <laughs> Uh, almost done here. The manuscript had a battle-scarred look. There were singed holes where smoldering cigarette ash had been scattered over the page. <laughs> and on, in one chapter, edited from the hospital bed where Dwight was recovering from an operation, arrived in the mail wrapped in gauze. <laughs> the pages smeared with blood. <laughs> Visible evidence of the surgery he was performing on my... <laughs> Sickly pearls. <laughs> anyway, I still bear the scars. <laughs> that was author James Atlas reading from his latest book, The Shadow in the Garden, a biographer's tale, published by Pantheon in 2017. This conversation was recorded at the Biographers International Organization's annual conference held at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the CUNY Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan on May 19, 2018. You can read more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Until next time, thanks for listening and enjoy your day.